Good morning, church. So if you've been here on Sunday mornings for the Sunday morning auditorium class, the last few weeks we've been focused on kind of how Jesus, the story we read about Jesus, relates to the Old Testament and how when the New Testament writers were reading the Old Testament, they couldn't help but keep seeing Jesus over and over again in it. There's a lot about the prophets. Uh, You're talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and some of those guys. There's a lot in those books that really reminds people of Jesus. And that led me down a rabbit hole this week. You know, Jesus is the Emmanuel that Isaiah spoke of. We believe that. We celebrate that this time of year. Jesus is the righteous branch of Jesse that... Uh, Jeremiah was speaking of. Jesus is the priest king, this Messiah of Israel that Zechariah pointed to. And it's interesting enough, Jesus himself was a prophet. This is all true. But it made me start thinking about the prophets this week, the different prophets of Israel, the ones that we focus on a lot. And there are a lot of great moments in Israel and Judah's history that are focused on the prophets. Like when Samuel shows up in this town to anoint the next king. And he goes through all the sons of Jesse, except for the last one. And he just can't figure out why he hasn't found the right king yet. And he says, is this all your sons? And David shows up. And he anoints David king while Saul is still king. It's just this huge moment in the history of that nation. Think of Elijah up on Mount Carmel, and there's the prophets of Baal, and there's Elijah. And they're calling on God to bring down fire. And Elijah douses this altar in water. He makes it so difficult that the only way that fire would come out is if God brought it. And he does. Think of Ezekiel. A few weeks ago, we had Jerry Taylor here, and he was talking about this story. You've got Ezekiel, who wanders into this deserted valley with these bones that are just dry. These bones that are long past dead. And he prophesies to these bones, and they come together. And all of a sudden, flesh forms around them. There are these great stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. There's a particular story of a prophet in the Old Testament that I think we forget sometimes. It starts back when Manasseh was king. Do you remember Manasseh? Of all the kings in Israel and Judah's history, Manasseh's the worst. He is evil. There are two verses in 2 Kings 21 that just point out how evil he is. He said more blood was shed than any other king. And then it talks about how he led more people astray than anyone else in history. Manasseh's the worst. Eventually his son Ammon becomes king, and they are so fed up with this family that they decide two years into his reign that they're going to kill him. And so these people stage a coup and they kill King Ammon. And Ammon is he's just kind of a nobody in the history of Israel at that point. But the people of Israel are so mad that they would kill a king that they kill the people that killed the king. And those people come together and they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to name this person king. We're going to name Josiah king. But the funny thing about Josiah is that he's eight years old. 
I was thinking about this this week. I was looking through our, our attendance roles, the people in our church, and looking for the eight-year-old. Cody Davidson? Let's make Cody king. You see? All right. That was the reality for a nation of people. They decided this eight-year-old is going to be king. And the thing about Josiah, the thing that you learn about Josiah is that that was one of the best decisions the nation ever made. Fast forward 10 years, we're in 2 Kings chapter 22. Fast forward 10 years, an 18-year-old Josiah is king. So we go from having Cody Davidson as king to having Matthew Maynard as king. That's the age range there. And all of a sudden, Josiah decides, you know what we need to do? We need to clean out the temple. We need to get all of the junk out of the temple. Think of it like a church cleanup day where you just go through and you get rid of everything. That's exactly what was happening. And while they were doing this, a guy named Hilkiah, who's the high priest of the temple, just comes across this old book. He hands it to the secretary of the king, and he takes it to the king, and Shaphan, this guy, just reads this book. And as he's reading the book, the king tears his clothes and says, we need to figure out what God wants from us. He tells them to go inquire of the Lord, because they had found the book of the law. So at this time, he calls together this council and says, go find the person. Go find what God wants. Go inquire of the Lord for us. And if you've read some of the prophets, you know that there are a couple of notable prophets at the time of Josiah. Namely, Jeremiah. Jeremiah happens to be the son of Hilkiah. Jeremiah is probably prophesying on the streets of Jerusalem. He is not hard to find. His dad is the high priest. But they don't go to Jeremiah. They don't. Zephaniah also gets a book written by him. The great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah could have been a sibling or a cousin of King Josiah. It could have gone to him. But they don't. To inquire of the Lord, they say, we're going to go to a different prophet altogether. And they go to Huldah. Now, how many of you have heard the name Huldah? How many of you considered naming your kids Huldah? One? Okay, good. On the flannel graphs that the people in my church taught me with, we never had Huldah. We didn't. For those of you who want to know what flannel graph is, just YouTube it later. (laughs) King Josiah goes down as the greatest king in the history of Israel. He does something that none of the other kings ever do. He reinstates the Passover that hadn't been done since the time of the judges. And he does this after inquiring with Huldah. Huldah is a female prophet who is just hanging out in the city. You know more about her siblings, her family, than you do about her, but when they want to know what God is saying, they go to her. On 
Monday night, we have our disciple group at my house, and we were having a conversation. And we were asking about men and women in the workplace, and our group was predominantly women that night, and that, that doesn't, that's not to <laughs> say anything negative about it. But we came to the conclusion that women often don't get the same recognition that men do. I know some of you are just utterly shocked by that statement. And some of you are elbowing your husbands. I get it. Lindsay was talking about how at the hospital, how when, when parents and kids are just kind of freaking out in the room and a nurse is saying exactly what needs to happen, sometimes Lindsay will just walk out of the room, talk to the male nurse, he'll go in and say the exact same thing and the situation's fine. Kim was talking about at school, how sometimes kids act inappropriately at school and a, and a female teacher will just jump in the middle of it and get beat up and get hit and a male teacher will just stand on the side. But once the male teacher gets involved, it calms down and everybody says, good job, male teacher. Tracy was talking about at the pharmacy how more times than not, somebody will walk up to her and say, hey, can we talk to that guy instead? Same job, but lack of recognition for doing it. Say all of that to bring us to our story today. In Luke chapter 2, we started this series last week uh, about this, this inconvenient Christmas and looking at the birth narrative of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 2, one of the people that you're introduced to is Simeon. And Simeon's great. Patrick's going to talk about Simeon next week, but it has a ton to say about Simeon and his credentials and how good he is. But Luke has this habit of putting two people in a story right next to each other. And he puts a man and a woman there, and right next to the story of Simeon, we get Anna. So in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. There are only a few things that you know about Anna. There are only three verses about Anna. She's not a major character that we often think of when we think of the Bible. But there are a few things that are, are significant about her. The first one is that she's a prophet. That's the first thing that Luke says about her. In the history of the Old Testament, in the, in the way that the, the Jewish um, scholars had read the Old Testament, they said there were seven female prophets. And here at the birth of Jesus, we're introduced to an eighth. That's significant. That's important. This female prophet was from the tribe of Asher. And if you know the 12 tribes, Asher's probably not the one you think of much. Asher didn't do much. They're not known for being spectacular. They're not known for their great leaders. They're kind of one of those forgotten tribes that nobody really cares about. But the thing that Luke makes crystal clear to us is that this is a woman who suffered. She had been married for seven years, but was a widow until the time she was 84. She had been married young, 
and was a widow. I know this is something we're wrestling with right now, but life can be really hard sometimes. I think a lot of people in this room, a lot of the people that we've been praying for are feeling that right now. And here around the holiday season, I think it's a little more acutely felt. You know, you talk about people who have estranged or toxic relationships, who who haven't been able to speak to their child or to their grandchild in years. Here around the holidays, people feel that. I was talking to a guy who was asking for some help um, about how he had lost custody of his kids. That, that's hard sometimes. I talked to a friend of mine whose dad has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And a friend my age is watching his dad pass away from this horrible disease. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago about the economic downturn in 2008. Now this person had been working in this job for years had given a ton to this company, but the company decided in 2008 to lay off everybody over the age of 55. And so she had to figure out, how do I work in a new field at that age? And this year, we know that people are going to be experiencing the holidays for the first time without people that they love. Life can be really hard sometimes. And Anna points that out. The story of Anna is the story of somebody who had been through that. Anna had experienced deep disappointment and deep grief. But the thing about Anna and the thing that matters is what she does in the midst of that. What the text says is that she stayed in the temple day and night, worshiping God by fasting and prayer. I think that's inspiring. I think we ought to be inspired by the faithfulness of Anna. I was reading a story this week. It's a story I'd read before, and and it just struck me. Do you know what nation in Europe has the highest percentage of people that believe in God? I know that's a ridiculous rhetorical question. The Vatican, Vatican. That's, that's a good guess. And probably correct. (laughs) We'll go with second most. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) It's Russia. Russia. You see, the way the story is told, in the midst of the rise of Marxism, There was this militant atheism that was a part of the culture, this this pursuit uh, in the Soviet Union to drown out Christianity, drown out a lot of different things. There was a group of grandmothers called babushkas, and I probably butchered that, but forgive me, that kept lighting candles in Russian churches. In the midst of persecution, these churches would be bombed and terrorized, but even in the midst of the rubble, these grandmothers would keep the flames of faith burning for these people. 
And while moms and dads would go to work, grandmothers would be at home with the kids and stealing virtues in them, teaching their grandchildren stories about Jesus and providing them with a moral compass. And in a society that was actively seeking the destruction of faith, the faithfulness of these women preserved a faith for the Russian people that you kind of get to see a little bit today. It's not a perfect country, I'm not suggesting anything like that, but I would say that their faithfulness provided a faith for the people to have. In our story of Anna, Luke points out that Anna had been fasting and praying for years. It doesn't say the content of those prayers. It doesn't say if it was prayers of thanksgiving or prayers of lament. It doesn't say that she was fasting, hoping for something or not. It just says that day after day and night after night, she kept doing this. She was faithful. I think we should look to people whose faithfulness we want to emulate to people whose routines of keeping their faith, whose prolonged service to God inspires us to live like that. But I also think that when we look at those people whose faithfulness inspires us, we will see that the sustaining force for most of them is actually the faithfulness of God. We may look at Anna and think she has so much more faith than I do. She would say, no, I just have more experience with the faithful God. We look at scripture, we look at Exodus 34, verse 6, and it's one of those times where God is revealing who he is, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Lamentations this terrible book about how awful life is in the midst of it. There's this beautiful verse that we just sing sometimes where we proclaim, great is your faithfulness. In Romans 3, Paul's asking, he's having this weird conversation with this interlocutor, and he says, well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he's saying, no, by no means. God is faithful. We spent some time this past year looking in Hebrews, and in Hebrews 10, verse 23, we read, Let us hold fast to the confession of our faith, for he who has promised is faithful. When we see a story like the story of Anna, the story of somebody who year after year, day after day, night after night is faithful, it should remind us that our God is faithful. And just as God promised to come and save us through Christ, so Christ promises to come again. And we can be, we can trust he will be faithful and keep that promise. One way that we maintain our faithfulness is gathering around his table every week. It's something that we do in this church. It's something that we do week after week after week. 
where we gather around his table and receive his body and his blood, which he has given for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, our God will come. He is going to come. But until he does, we need to maintain our faithfulness. I'm going to invite the men who are going to serve to to go back and and grab that. Uh, And I'll offer a prayer for us as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his body, which he laid down for us, and which you now offer to us. God, I pray that we will receive this with grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.